Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Hope you all are doing okay. Get situated here. Um, let's, uh, we're going to continue on in our sermon series called Far As the Curse Is Found. Uh, walking through really kind of the story of the Old Testament. Um, the story of the Hebrew scriptures of God making himself known. I'm going to read for you this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 12. Hang on. Yep, starting in verse 12 uh, and going through verse 22, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into it. It's, uh, Deuteronomy, I explained this a little bit last week uh, when I talked about the treaty of what? Everybody remember? So, all right, Suzerain Vassal, Suzerain Treaty. Uh, <laughs> I, the comment I got last week was, I think you said that enough. Um, so you should remember that from here on out. Uh, but we're in, in Deuteronomy, and really in Deuteronomy, Paul, Paul is not part of Deuteronomy. Um, <laughs> Moses uh, is telling the people of Israel the law again. He's reminding them right before they go and occupy the land that God had promised them. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 12, I'll read through verse 22. Uh, we should have it up there. If you want to follow along or if you want to uh, look in your Bible or your Bible app, just stay on that app and don't go to the other ones and you'll be good. Uh, all right. Starting in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? To keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. And yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers close, uh, and chose their offspring after them. You above all people, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, great, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. By his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Let me give you just a little bit of background where we're at before I tell you that I don't really have a well-prepared sermon this morning. I'll get to that in a second. This is where we're at in the story. Um, 
God made himself known. You know, we had start after start after start in Genesis 1 through 11. And then we get, uh, then God, uh, in Genesis 12, uh, we have the Tower of Babel preceding Genesis 12, uh, which is a city built to the glory of man. And God sees this and says, this is not the way it was to, is to be. You are not to live independence, uh, independently. You are not to live for your own glory. You are li to live for the glory of the one who created you, the one who made you. And so God then starts with Abraham, and, or with Abram, and with Abram he promises, I will give you an offspring, which this is at 75 years old, and it's 100 years old when Abram finally gets that offspring. Uh, and he also says, I will make of you a people, a nation, I will give you a land. And here we are some 400 plus years later, and God is giving this land to the people that he promised to Abraham. Has anybody else been like, all right, God, you promised this, and uh, it's been 10 minutes. Where is the fulfillment of that? When we read scripture, we are confronted with the fact that it's probably closer to 500 years before God fully delivers the promise of Abraham. And even here, as God's people, God has made himself known in the law. This is finally like we get the full picture of who God is and the laws and how he's going to, uh, what he demands, what he commands. Uh, and then um, uh, there's going to be this reminder over and over again. This is the fullest picture we'll get of God until Jesus himself, which is actually the embodiment of God, it is God incarnate, uh, will come and walk the earth. Uh, and so this is where we're at in the story. The people are getting ready to enter the land. Moses is giving them one more beautiful powerful encouragement and warning before they enter the land. We read Deuteronomy 6 last week. Take care lest you forget the Lord. You're going to start living in houses that you didn't build. You're going to start building careers on the backs of other people that you didn't build. You're going to start making money thinking I have achieved when it's not been you. It's been a community and it's been the Lord who has blessed you. You're going to accomplish these things and you're going to have a tendency to start saying in your heart, this was me. Take care lest you forget the Lord. It is God alone who has provided. Okay? So this is where we're at in the story. And now we're at Deuteronomy where he's, where he's giving the law again. It gives this beautiful passage. And if I can be honest for just a second, I poured over this. I have about eight different sermons written. Um, none of them are here. Um, there is so much to say here. There is a lot going on here. This is a beautiful passage. This is a powerful passage. Uh, any place I started taking it felt to be a distraction. Um, any point I tried to make, uh, it just it felt like I was, um, uh, I don't know. This is a profound statement of God's love for his people. And um, I felt like any attempt to kind of add to it uh, just felt like I was, I don't know, reading in the ingredients and instructions on the back of a, you know, pancake box. What's the pancake stuff? This quick. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there's a lot here. Uh, this is a beautiful picture of God making himself known, calling his people, establishing his people. This is what you are to do. This is what you are to be. This is me. This is God infusing his character into his people to make known his character among the nations. And uh, so here's what we're going to do. I have a few statements that I'm going to make from the text. Um, uh, 
and uh, this is not normal. Uh, I kind of thought, <laughs> thought, man, well, it's going to be nice out. Uh, maybe everybody will like go to the park or do something else. And here you guys all are. Um, so uh, I'm going to bring, try to bring out a few things um, here as far as where we are in the story, what this text is making known. Try to give a little bit of insight. We're going to pray. We're going to rejoice in communing with God and with one another, and then hopefully continue to walk in the faith. Okay? All right. Some days you just hit a wall. Some weeks you just hit a wall. I hit a wall. Here's the first statement. God's law is not a list of rules. God's law is an invitation to a relationship. We looked at this a little bit last week. Um, chronology is important. Uh, God first delivered his people out of Egypt and then gave, the, gave them the law. He first rescued them, then he gave them the law. Uh, I've, I have uh, shared this before. Um, I am really, really spontaneous. My wife is really, really structured. Uh, that goes great together, often. Um, my gifts to her on birthdays, anniversaries, important dates, things like that, the first few years, um, were so bad that we had to have a summit <laughs> for her to explain to me how to give gifts that she actually liked and appreciated. Um, my wife is not big on like surprises, plus the fact that she can read me like a book and I'm eager to give them away. And so by the time it's a surprise, it's not even a surprise anymore. She likes very helpful and practical gifts. So here's some things that I learned the first few years of marriage. Um, uh, we didn't have much money, um, so flowers were nice, but she would prefer something practical that she can use. Uh, especially if she was at home, she's like, they just sit on the counter. Uh, listen, and my wife made me promise, it, it's, it's me, it's not her, it's me. Um, so flowers are nice, but they're, but they're not very practical. Um, uh, Fishing rods don't count for five-year anniversary gifts, even if you bought two with the thought of maybe we could go fishing together. <laughs> when I don't fish and neither does she. Uh, a DVD of a romantic movie doesn't cut it for an anniversary gift, even though you said, well, we'll just, we'll watch it together as well. That's not very good. Uh, and finally, um, when comfy PJs are written on the Christmas list, that does not mean lingerie. Um, these were very helpful things for me to learn about my wife. Now, I'm a feeler, and so I immediately took all of these things as rejection. <laughs> but when you think about it, this was very helpful. What made you think I would want a fishing rod? I don't know. Because <laughs> I wanted a fishing rod. Shouldn't that be what you want? This was really helpful in our relationship. Listen, relationships are complicated. They're nuanced. They're messy. Romantic relationships, friendships, um, the church, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the world around us, it's complicated and it's messy. And um, I, I mean, I've done a lot of pastoral counseling in all areas of relationships. And I will say that the biggest hindrance to every area of relationship is, is unexpressed, unmet, well, uh, unexpressed, oftentimes unrealistic, and therefore unmet expectations. 
It's not finances, I mean, unless it's related to unmet expectations. We have expectations for the way people should receive us or the way people should respond to us. We often don't express them. They're often unrealistic, which we don't realize until we express them. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking when she unwrapped, you know, any of those gifts. Um, and, uh, and then we say things like, well, they should know. He should know. She should know. I shouldn't have to tell them. We're all wired differently. We're messy. Relationships are messy. Here's what is wonderful about the law. God does not leave it up to us to guess what he's like. God doesn't say, I'm up here. I'm almighty. I'm all powerful. It's not my fault you rebelled. You should know. You should just try to figure out what I like. God makes himself known. Not only that, but he doesn't say, if you follow these rules, I will rescue you. He said, I have rescued you. Now, here's what I want you to be. Here's what I want you to become. Here's how I want you to pursue me. Here's the gifts that I want you to give me. Here's the offering and the praise that I want you to bring before me. God doesn't play that game. Um, at the same time, it's also important to know that the law is not an alternative to knowing God. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, Tim Keller would always talk about there's two ways to avoid our need for Jesus as Savior. There's an irreligious way where we just say, I'll do my own thing, I'll captain my own ship. But there's also a religious way where we say, I'll follow all the rules, and therefore, I don't need a Savior as much. The law becomes an alternative to actually knowing and trusting and loving God, which is what he requires of his people. That's what he says right off the bat. Um, all right. So that's first thought. What was that? The law is an invitation to a relationship. It's not just this list of rules. It's actually God making his character known and inviting us to know him. Second thing is this. The law is, is actually good, uh, and it actually nourishes our relationship. I'm going to use some marriage analogies this morning. Um, uh, I probably could have used other analogies, but I'm going to use some marriage analogies. Um, the law is good and uh, actually nourishes our relationship. Have you ever read Psalm 1? Psalm 1 is a great psalm to memorize if you ever want to memorize a psalm. Um, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Have you ever heard that and thought, that's kind of weird? His delight is in the law of the Lord. Like, unless you're studying for the bar exam... Why would your, surely he's not thinking about like legislation and traffic rules and things like that, I would imagine. So what does it mean that his delight is in the law of the Lord? Um, the law of the Lord is actually the character of God made known. It's who he is. It's the way he designed the world to operate. It's the way he designed the world to be. Uh, and so it is... It's actually good. And our obedience to the, to the law actually nourishes our relationship. Here again, another uh, marriage analogy. I, I hate um, doing the laundry. And uh, for those of you who are confused by this, doing the laundry does not mean putting clothes into a machine and pressing a button. That is not doing the laundry. What is doing the laundry? Folding. Yes. Yes. Anybody can put stuff in a machine and press buttons. 
But when the stacks and the mounds build up uh, and like there's a warning sign of collapse happening, um, my wife did it for a long time in our house. She's the one that, that folded the laundry. Uh, and then she went back to work several years ago and it became my job. And I, and I hate folding the laundry and there's only one person in our household that hates it more and that's my wife. Now I would love to tell you that I fold the laundry because of my deep devotion and love to my wife. And that's not true. Um, I love and am devoted to my wife. I, that's not where I want, wanted to go with that. I don't fold the laundry often because I love her. I fold the laundry because it's, it's my job. It's my duty in the house. It's part of living in community. Uh, it's part of being part of this family. And I will walk past the laundry room, the mud room, and I will see the stacks and stacks and stacks. And I don't know, like, and it causes, like, a heaviness and a weight to come over me. Am, am I wrong? Okay. Te we can all testify, right? Uh, well, if you're, if you're responsible for it, you can testify. Um, if you're not responsible for it and you walk past, it brings some probably bitterness, I would imagine. Uh, and um, I don't like doing it. But when I do it, and especially over the last year when all rhythms uh, have been thrown, like, you know, I used to turn music loud on Thursday. It was my day off, and that's, I'd spend the morning just folding laundry and listening to whatever I wanted. Now everybody's there, uh, and, and they're all bugging me. <laughs> so I don't ever do it. Um, but when I do it, and then I walk by and I look at, like, a sense of accomplishment. I look at the baskets that are empty, except for about 30 single, pair, single socks without matches and a couple of random washcloths in there. And I look at those baskets that are mostly empty and they're put back on the shelves uh, and there's not stuff spread out all over on the floor. There is a sense of delight and joy. And then my wife sees that and there's a sense of delight and joy in her. And she often says, honey, thank you. It just feels good to walk through that room and it not be all piled up everywhere. Our obedience to the law actually nourishes the relationship. Um, it may feel like a burden, but when you do it and when you are obedient to it, there is a joy and a delight to be found there. Does that make sense? My other alternative this morning was just kind of throw these out and do like a discussion group, but I think there's too many people here to do that. So, but if I get off track too far, we'll, we'll just pray and take communion. Um, There's a joy in obedience. Also, what we see, what we have made known to us through Christ is there's actually also a joy in repentance and receiving forgiveness when we are not obedient. Um, hiddenness or walking away from obedience just continues to produce more anxiety. Like me not doing the laundry feels a little bit like freedom, except for it's still there. And then I find more reasons and then the stat gets higher. Uh, Reconciliation in that has to have repentance and forgiveness. Um, several years ago, my wife and I were dealing with a particular issue, and, uh, and it was one of those things that she called me out, and I promised I would do better, and then she just said, listen, I want, I want to forgive you, but you don't ever ask me for forgiveness. You just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and you make a then you make kind of make excuses and I'll do better, I'll do better, and you make empty promises that you then don't do. I want to forgive you. Ask me for forgiveness.
Obedience to the law, that, that's part of obedience, is um, trusting God with his grace and mercy to forgive. And so the discipline or the practice of obedience, whether that's in confession or repentance, whether that's in doing the things that may, bring, may seem like a burden at first, actually nourishes our trust in our relationship. Um, the next thing, obedience might feel restrictive, but it, it actually brings true joy and true freedom. These kind of flow into each other. Uh, there's the gift of limitations. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the gift of limitations. Basically, what that tells you and what that tells me is that you and I are not God. We cannot do everything. We cannot hold all the world together. We cannot manage the world. Um, we can't be or do everything. And to actually rest in who God created you to be and your need for not only him, but for other people. Um, I think we live in a culture where we say independence equals freedom. Uh, but independence, first of all, we're never fully independent. We're always dependent on something or someone. Uh, and the way God puts this, when, he, when they talk about going into the land, God says, worship me alone. He says this over and over again in this passage. I am the God of gods. I'm the Lord of lords. Worship me alone. And what he's saying is, you're going to be tempted to go into, into this land, which is in the middle of all these other nations, and you're going to be tempted to pick up the worship of the other gods, of the lesser gods, and follow them, and begin their practices. And I'm telling you now, don't do that. We always have a tendency to worship some god, or to follow some other habit or pattern of Worship. We worship the God of what people think about us. Um, we worship the God of not having to be responsible for too many things or too many people. The God of, uh, of sometimes feeling anxious or sometimes avoiding uh, anxiety at all costs. We worship the God of winning uh, or being better, at least being better than so-and-so. Uh, the God of having control over all my circumstances, my relationships, my kids, my appearances, my finances. We form small habits, intentionally or unintentionally, that are actually worship, worshipful habits of these gods. Uh, I'm going to recommend this book uh, probably every Sunday from here on out. Uh, the Common Rule by a guy named Justin Whitmull Early. Uh, it's fantastic, but he talks about some of these um, small habits that he operates out of, that are actually worshipful liturgies. I wake up exhausted again because I never go to bed on time. That's the habit. The liturgy of worship is, uh, I'm not a creature, I am infinite. My, my body will be fine. I'm not a god, or I am a god. The habit, I look at work emails on my phone before getting out of bed. The liturgy of worship is, I can miss quiet time, I can, I can miss a quick, uh, but I can't miss a quick response. I can miss silence. My time with God is secondary, but I must know if so-and-so replied to my email or my text. Because unless I'm well-regarded in the office or at school or among my friends, then I'm not worth anything. The habit. I grab breakfast on the go while everyone else in my family scrambles to get somewhere late. At the office, uh, I eat my lunch at my desk by myself. The liturgy of worship is being too busy is normal, maybe even desirable. I'm important. 
If a lot of people want my time, and to stay important, I need to stay busy, and that means being late all the time. Another habit, I keep all my computer notifications turned on and keep my phone on and in sight while I work. The liturgy of worship, I need to know what's going on out there. The most recent thing is the most important thing. The best way to love my neighbors is to stay updated on dramatic headlines and new memes, not actually to do focused work. I should have read these better before I said these. These are convicting. Last one, habit. Even when I sense all of the above is getting out of control, even when the best word to describe my life is scattered or busy, I resist any rules that would restrict technology use and work schedules. The liturgy of worship there is to limit myself, to restrict my freedom, uh, and I'm not fully human without my freedom of choice in every moment. The good life comes from choosing what you want. The reality is we're never really fully independent. We operate out of habits, good or bad. Um, what God wants to do with his people is put them smack dab into this world, into this other, all these other nations and all these other cultures, and to have them struggle and fight to actually believe that he is good and that he is ultimate. And that doesn't eliminate, like that's not... Well, I, then I just need to throw my phone away. That's an overreaction, probably. But to put those notifications in their proper, proper place. To put what people think about me in, it, in its proper place. The goal, like if you say, well, I, I struggle with uh, what other people think about me. And you go, the way I'm going to fix that is I'm not going to care what anybody thinks about me. No. Please care at least a little bit about what other people think about you. Right? Um, it's to put that in its proper place. Care appropriately about what other people think. Obedience might feel restrictive. It might feel like a burden, but it actually brings true freedom. Are we doing okay? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, the next one, and this is second to last. Christianity is not simply, this one is critical. Christianity is not simply either this side a set of beliefs or doctrines to ascertain and hold, nor is it simply a set of actions to do. Christianity, it is a kingdom to rehearse. It is a kingdom to practice. It is a reality to walk in and dwell in. This is what God is establishing in Israel. He's going to put his people there. He's going to give them his law, how he is, what he is, and he is going to say, dwell by this. And, and, and then the promise there is, if you do, it will go well with you. Um, and this is something I've wrestled with for a long time. Uh, the Lausanne Project or something like that. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever heard of that. What the, the, the last gathering of this uh, conference was like 10 years ago. And the, the question they were asking is, what's more important, belief or practice? Anybody want to take a guess of that? What's more important, belief or practice? Yeah. yeah. Which leg do you need more? 
Yeah. Um, we want to we want to do this, and 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 we want to pit one against the other. Um. And the reality is the hope of the gospel is not, if your belief is like a snowflake, it's fine, articulate, masterful, beautiful, beautifully woven together, and yet ice cold, it, it's incomplete. And if your practice is big and bold and powerful, uh, like, a, like a massive ship at sea, but has no rudder to guide it, then it's dangerous. We live in a world of rhetoric. We have a tendency to scarf down the rhetoric on our side with little scrutiny and, and then give little attention at all to rhetoric from, uh, that, that's different from us. Um, What God is presenting here is, this is who I am. Your call, your purpose, I have rescued you to image who I am. So your, your good and right belief about me is good and yet incomplete if you don't then put this into practice. He talks about sojourners. Do you know how absolutely not only unique, but how crazy it was for Israel, their laws, actually, they, for anybody that sojourned among Israel, uh, were not subject to a different set of laws. They were supposed to be subject to the exact same laws that the citizens of Israel were subject to. That's profound, in that day especially. You were identified by your nation, by your nationality. And if you were wandering, sojourning, if you, were, if you were a foreigner, an outsider, wandering in Israel, you were given the same laws as the rest of Israel. It means the same punishment. Another thing, the, the rich and the poor were supposed to have the same levels of punishment. Cocaine use is not 20 years in jail on this side of the river and a $150 fine on this side of the river. It was supposed to be equal and just. Doctrine, knowing God's character, experiencing the grace and mercy and justice of God, it, it, this is never presented in Scripture as an academic battleground. It is presented uh, as a, a, a belief to then practice and live out, a kingdom to begin to rehearse and play, play out. All right, that's fourth, last one. Um, and here again, this is already kind of covered. God's character creates uh, God's character creates a beautiful community. The whole purpose of God rescuing and redeeming this people is that He will imprint His character on them, and then have them live this out 
in the land. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? This was, not, this was prime real estate, but not for like any good reasons. It was prime real estate because everybody had to travel through it if you were gonna go anywhere. It wasn't good farming land. It, wasn't, it didn't produce good crops. It was basically rocky. There's no place for, for animals to graze, for livestock. And so, uh, and uh, I remember, or if you remember, we shared the comedian who said, you know, God delivered his people to the only square footage in the Middle East that didn't have oil underneath it. Uh, and, but he puts them in this place because every nation, if you're going from Europe down to Africa, you have to go right through there. Vice versa. You have to go right through God's people if you're going anywhere. He puts them right in the middle of the known world, deliver them, delivers them to the land of Canaan. To really practice this and live this out, a way of doing life that puts this God, the God of Israel, above all other gods, and that shapes how we do things, and it shapes the laws that we form, and it shapes the way that we uh, love and serve one another. At least, uh, at least it should. Every once in a while, I'm tempted to think, man, they had these, these, they had these commands, and they did it right. Let me let you in on a little secret, okay? God's people, we got a really strong 6,000 years of pretty much blowing it, going. So whenever you look around, you're like, oh, what's going on with the church? What's wrong with God's people? We got a pretty established track record. And God has a pretty established track record of continuing to be faithful, continuing to mold and shape. And here's, here is what's profound to me. The image that we have of eternity, that God says is what's coming, is an image that contains every tribe and every tongue. That means despite our best efforts at messing this up, God's formation of this people to make himself known to every tribe and tongue will actually happen. I have bullet points, so I, I forgot what I wrote here, so I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read it. The kingdom of God is one where what is practiced is that someone's value and worth are not determined by their economic status, but by the God who created them. There's a whole lot behind this. There's a lot behind how Israel was to operate. They were to be a voice for the voiceless. They were to advocate for those who could not advocate for themselves. Bribes. Uh, bribes were such an affront to God because bribes were a way for the rich to avoid justice. And that's not what God is about. That was a terrible representation of God's character. God wanted his people to reflect his character. So there's a whole lot of places we could go with this. Let me share a story and then, uh, and then we'll pray. This is a history. Uh, history story that just shows uh, lots of complications. Um, James Thomas. James Thomas was born a slave in Nashville in 1927. He was born, his father, who was also his owner, was a white judge uh, in Nashville. His father would eventually leave Nashville and become a uh, uh, a, an apprentice to one of the Supreme Court justices. James Thomas was able to buy his freedom and then he moved to St. Louis. Um, and uh, it was said that he 
understood the soul of the rich white man. If you've ever read anything by W.E.B. Du Bois, he talks about the soul of the white man. That he was able to, to understand the soul of the rich white man. He was a barber, which also meant he did shaves. And so he knew what guys liked. He knew what they wanted to talk about. He knew what they wanted to hear. This is where things, this is where you see some of the complications of all of life. He, uh, James Thomas actually made it very, very wealthy. And he moved to St. Louis and he had a barber shop downtown St. Louis uh, where he looked, uh, overlooked the courthouse uh, that's right downtown St. Louis. Um, and though he was free, though he was able to purchase his own freedom, uh, there was a time in Missouri where uh, there was a law that was almost passed where you could not be black and free and live in Missouri. And so if you were black and you, had, and you were free, you paid a $1,000 bond uh, and you could continue to operate, which $1,000 in the 1850s, I'm assuming, was a lot of money. $1,000 right now is a lot of money. Um, you could, you could be free until they were able to relocate you, or if you stayed, you would just be put into slavery. Um, that was never signed by the governor, so it never became official law. I don't know if, he, if uh, Thomas ever got his $1,000 back, though. Um, wealthy white men often did not like other white men in, in uh, areas of service, waiters, uh, barbers, things like that. They, they looked down and despised. And so uh, the lower class uh, white people despised both rich white men and slaves. And often uh, any black person that would, had made a living uh, in the service industry. Uh, and so there's a lot of complicated relationships going on there. James Thomas, uh, his barbershop overlooked the courthouse downtown St. Louis, where in 1857 he would watch Dred Scott go back and forth every day uh, to sit in court. Dred Scott, whose case was famously uh, determined, the verdict read, in the, the courthouse in St. Louis, uh, he was a slave who was trying to sue for his own freedom. Uh, he was owned by a family, and that family traveled to various states, and in those states, there was no slavery. And so Dred Scott basically said, if we are dwelling in a state that does not, that outlaws slavery, I shouldn't be a slave. Um, there was a couple of hundred court cases that gave precedent to that, where slaves were actually able to sue for their freedom. Dred Scott sued, and initially, and, and not only that, but he and his wife had a child in, uh, like, Illinois or Wisconsin, and, which was a free state at the time, and they, even there, they should have been, they said that their child should be free. He sued initially and won, and then uh, the higher courts uh, in Missouri overturned that, and then it went to the Supreme Court. The verdict given by the Supreme Court, which was celebrated math years ago uh, yesterday, 1957, as of yesterday, I'm not going to attempt math again. What is that, 100 and? This is a while ago. Um, so this is why I'm bringing this up. Uh, basically, the law handed down from the federal government was we cannot bestow citizenship upon you. Um, you are uh, basically, so then, uh, you have to be a citizen to even file a lawsuit. 
you are not a citizen. We are not going to make you a citizen. Our verdict is you shouldn't have even been able to, to bring a lawsuit. And the final verdict that was read basically said, there is no law where a white man should be bound to a black man. The assistant to the head justice that made that announcement was James Thomas's father. As James Thomas watched this case unfold, James Thomas was the barber. Israel was to be a community in the midst of these nations that proclaimed and lived out a picture of the character of God. The church, followers of Jesus, is also called to be a community of followers of Jesus in the midst of the world around us that paints a picture of eternity. People from every tribe and tongue, people that are not People, genders, whatever, that are not robbed of their ethnicity, that are not robbed of, of their identity, and yet are of equal value before God. Where justice is applied equally. Every station in life, every economic position... Um, is given dignity and value and worth. And, and this is the beautiful community that followers of Jesus are called to bear the image of. That we are actually fighting for not only one another, but also fighting against the pressure of the world around us that seeks to distort and destroy. And, and this is not blindness. This is not blindness to cultural difference. This is actually embracing of cultural difference to the glory of God. And this is part of, this is intrinsically part of what God calls his people in Israel to be. And then when the formation of the church Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the formation of the church, this is the, the image that we are to bear. This is what, and I'll, I'll finish here. I don't, I don't have a finishing point. Um, that, well, that was my finishing point. We'll go back here. This is not simply beliefs to ascertain. This is not simply an academic doctrine or position to hold. All of this, in all of its messiness, and all of its complications, and all of its not just going together neatly and folding together, but all of the pains and the expectations and all that come with relationships, it is this beautiful community that God has called us to be as the bride of Christ. I'd love to, I would love to like unpack questions and sit and talk for 30 minutes, but that's not going to, that's not going to happen. <laughs> We're not going to do that. Um, all right. We, are we good? I don't have a practice for you this week. What was the practice last week? Anybody remember? Was it Lord's Prayer? I'd say keep doing that. Um, keep trying to say the Lord's Prayer every day. Um, 
All right. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for your love for your people. Um, Thank you that you love your bride. Thank you that even as we're called to be this as a people, we're not called... We we are individuals. We are developing and growing our own personal faith. Um, But this is not absent of one another. Uh, This is not simply my preferences. This has to come with a compassionate ear of where we we may make cultural uh, assumptions and and preferences that may not be gospel. uh, And give us the humility to hear and to, to listen. Also, may we encourage one another. We are often filled with shame of how much we're not doing. And so I pray that you would um, help us to encourage one another to be bold in our confession and repentance, to actually obey even when it may feel restrictive. That freedom actually comes from obedience and not just from doing whatever we want. That independence is a myth, and often if we ever achieve independence, it's out of wounds. I pray that you would, all, all of those hurts, all of those messes, are what you are forming and fashioning into a beautiful picture of your character, your grace, and mercy. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So I pray that we would take whatever beliefs, uh, doctrines, positions that we hold and begin to, to live those out and work those out. Or we would take whatever practices and we would weigh those against the truth of who you are. And may your people continue to be formed and fashioned after your image to bear it well here in St. Charles and throughout this region and around the world for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.